Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. Hello, everyone, wherever you are. One of the great things about Traveling around the country in an RV is you get to see nature's wonders and meet a lot of interesting people, both old friends and new. One of the things you don't have is sometimes good sound, especially when you're trying to record a podcast. Once again, I want to apologize for the sound quality on this upcoming podcast, but the topic is so important that Bliss and I decided to release it anyway. So I hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening and your patience. Hi, Bliss. Hey, how's it going? It's going I see good. It, it's going great. I, I see we have a guest right off the bat today. Hi, yes. Jennifer. Hi, Bliss. How are you? Yeah, let me okay. say something about that. Okay. Um, yeah. I'm in Raleigh, North yeah, and it was with Dr. Bob Sears and Dr. Cami Benton and Dr. Jennifer Margulis. And uh, it was well attended and lovely, lovely people sponsored by Heal NC, H E L N N C. People can look that up.org, right? .org. I think it's .org. Anyway, we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, but we're going to get right into it today. We're going to, Bliss and I will we'll catch up on. What we've been doing probably in the next podcast, remember I was went to the farm and I've got all these things to catch up with you guys on, but because we have a special guest and we're limited in time uh, at the uh, facility here, we're going to get right into it and talk to Jennifer today. So let me just give her a little bit of an intro. Jennifer Margulis, who's a PhD, is an award-winning science, science journalist. She graduated magna cum laude from Cornell University, earned a master's at the University of California at Berkeley, and a PhD at Emory. So you're, you've got a lot of alphabet stuff. We jokingly say all the time, you, in order to be as stupid as some people are, the, they have to be very highly educated because common sense people like you see all over, normal people like I'm meeting in the RV parks, they're, they're amazingly smart. They are. They're so much smarter than a lot of academia. <laughs> she's a, a contributing writer at the Epoch Times. And she's also quoted me several times. I just want to say that. He's also the author, editor, and co-author and co-editor of eight books, including ones you've heard of, like Your Baby, Your Way, Taking Charge of Your Pregnancy, Childbirth and Parenting Decisions for a Happier, Healthy Child, in which he interviewed Dr. Stu, and The Vaccine-Friendly Plan, which all of our listeners know about that book with Dr. Paul Thomas. You can find her now on Substack. She started her own Substack, so you can go to substack.com and put in Jennifer Margulis. That's M-A-R-G-U-L-I-S. And you'll, she'll come up and you should subscribe to her because even though you can do Substack for free, um, it's worth subscribing to these people because they're independent journalists. And because they're independent, they often give us truth, <laughs> which is fascinating. <laughs> in age. So Jennifer, welcome to the Breathing Instincts podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We're, we're delighted to have you. I've just had fun with you the last couple of days, so it's been great. I spent, I had lunch with Jen in Greenville, uh, South Carolina, um, where it had just rained recently and the river was just flowing like mad. It was, it was pretty good. And I ate a healthy, um, I ate a healthy lunch. 
You did. We went to Green Fetish. Yes, went to a place called Green Fetish. And uh, the big joke, the big running joke this week, this has been that I eat Frosted Flakes. <laughs> and so Jennifer's been chastising me like crazy. But I really don't eat Frosted Flakes that often. I was just, I was just at the market and I was alone and I was feeling like I wanted something comforting to eat it in the RV and Frosted Flakes were so easy. It's interesting that you said that because I interviewed a doctor a few years ago who said that um, it's harder to get someone to change their diet than it is to get them to change their religion. And you said <laughs> the Frosted Flakes bring you comfort because there's that whole, you know, that's what um, big business wants to do. They want to get us from the cradle to the grave. So if you grow up and that's your comfort food and that's what you ate as a child and that's what you branded, they basically branded you just like a and then you're loving it, even though you know there's a lot of better choices. Yeah. You so you don't, I have a question, Jennifer. So you don't have one of those nostalgic comfort foods that you know isn't good for you? Because I do. Do you? What's yours? Mine is Ruffles potato chips with sour cream and mixed in onion, Lipton's onion soup. And it makes this dip. No, I can eat that. Does every day if I didn't know that it was terrible for me. Um, well, it's funny because those comfort foods, I think used to actually not be as toxic as they are now. Cause then they, you know, when we keep it destroying the environment and destroying the topsoil and putting more and more additives into our food and less and less food into our food, it becomes more processed. So, I mean, I like to, I don't, I don't usually eat breakfast, but I like to, I love, I love, I love the first meal of the day, but I get really excited about eating interesting, different things than normal, like really good leftovers from the night before for breakfast or figuring out how to get a bunch of vegetables. So I've actually been known, this is very weird, but I've been, you know, I like to put in a whole bunch of fruit and then some carrots and some purple cabbage and some chia seeds and some sunflower seeds, and then usually a, an alternative dairy Thing like um, soy milk or almond milk or oat milk, and that makes a delicious breakfast. So I'm eating cereal, just like Dr. Sue do, but I'm eating a little bit like the healthy version. Okay, so I see you skirted the topic, but that's okay. I'm going to let you just say that you only eat healthy foods all the time. No, uh, okay. that's not true. <laughs> like, no, I've actually, um, I've actually been a little bit on a weight loss journey that's taken quite a long time. I mean, I'm, I've probably lost about 15, I've actually lost about 20 pounds, but I've done it over two years. And we were talking at this conference and I was saying that I thought I ate healthy. And I've noticed that I've interviewed so many people who believe that they eat healthy and they believe that because they're eating organic gluten-free granola bars, that they're eating healthy food or because they eat organic strawberry yogurt, they're eating healthy food. And the truth is, is that the more processed the food and the less, the less it looks like something that came from nature, the less healthy it is. And it's a very simple idea that we should be eating real food. But I had, you know, four children and no one in the course of my first pregnancy ever said to me, let's talk about diet. Let's talk about what you're eating. Let's talk about not eating highly processed <laughs> crap ever. Yeah. We don't even have a day on nutrition in medical school. I definitely agreed with everything you just said in terms of, you know, the way to know that you're doing well is to have food that you can recognize as being food. 
that's like one of the simplest, simplest things. So what are we, what is our topic today? Because now all of your listeners are going to be like, who is that obnoxious? No, 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 no. And of course I have things I eat that I shouldn't, and I have vices that I don't even want to tell you about because then your listeners will hate me even more. But um, it's not about being holier than anyone. It's just about how to be as vibrant as you can be. And I'm more vibrant when I eat really good food. Well, excuse the pun here, but our listeners are going to eat this up, okay? <laughs> so so I, I want to say that Jen gave a talk today, and I'm going to ask her if she could make, summarize it in a few words in a minute. But at the end of the talk, she had us do this little exercise where she had us stand up and hug the person next to us, okay? And then we went through this list of, you know, how to be healthy. And I'm not going to tear down what what the um, organizations like the CDC and the FDA have done to us over the last couple of years, because it's everything they've done is wrong. But we made a list and she, uh, you know, has the audience and we shouted out things. And what happened when we hugged each other and uh, one, somebody yelled out, well, there was love in the room. And that's true. And there were smiles in the room. And then she asked, well, what does that all mean? And she got the answer from me that she was looking for, because I said oxytocin. And, uh, <laughs> Then they talked about the microbiome and then they talked about exercise and just moving. And it's not really exercise at all. It's, you don't have to be buff. You just have to be moving. You have to be outside. You have to touch the earth. You have to get dirty. Talked about before in the podcast how kids probably who grew up in the Midwest playing in the dirt are so much healthier than kids growing up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan where everything is pureled to death. Get out in the sunshine, get plenty of sleep, uh, keep your body in alignment, eat real food, like we just talked about, real food, and, and avoid toxins. And avoiding toxins is obviously in the, today's day and age almost an impossible task. You want to talk a little bit about that? Because you, you talked a little bit about, what is it, glyph glyphosate? Glyphosate. Yeah. Well, wait, before you jump into that, I want to tell you that I did so many of those this morning. I went to yoga outside. I had my feet on the grass. I went and got myself a really healthy smoothie. And uh, I feel happy. You're smiling. I feel happy. Love. Yeah. So I got oxytocin and I went to bed early because I knew I was going to be up early. So I'm doing pretty well today. Just had to say. You're rocking it. Boy. Yeah, well, it, it, it's showing you're glowing today as well. Right. <laughs> and lots of water, you didn't say, but lots of water. Mm, especially drinking filtered water. That's a good way to get And you also, you also mentioned one thing that we'd forgotten to put on there because it really didn't apply to the actual whole group. But is breastfeeding, yeah. yeah. And we talked about that on our most on a, one of our recent podcasts. We went into breastfeeding why yeah. and why it's not I didn't, promoted. I didn't. I didn't do that today. Sorry, you didn't breastfeed <laughs> a baby or drink any breast. The milk? day is young, Bliss. <laughs> yeah, I'll put that young. on the list. There's plenty of sunshine here. left out there. You, you never know what might happen. <laughs> uh, maybe we should take a break right now and talk about your favorite subject. <laughs> What? <laughs> Sorry for those of you who weren't in on the joke, but Stu, uh, Stu uh, pretended to have boobies for a minute. So Bam Boobies, our, uh, our lovely and devoted sponsor. Thank you so much for um, believing in us. And uh, we believe in you too. And they're an amazing company that has um, 
a commitment to the comfort of mom and baby. And one of the reasons why, I mean, a lot of companies are committed to that. One of the reasons why I love them is because they're also committed to taking care of the environment. So they use reusable resources like bamboo, which is awesome um, in a lot of their uh, clothing line and in their breast pads, their awesome heart-shaped breast pads, which are my favorites. What else do they have, Stu, that you, that oh, you've you know, noticed? I don't use their products because uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, my skin is the most neglected uh, living organism on earth. But, <laughs> <laughs> but besides that, um, they have a great boutique and people should go to badboobies.com and look, and they have their organic nipple balm and some other things that, that a lot of our listeners would be interested in. So yeah, they're awesome. Badboobies.com and use the code word instincts. That's I-N-S-T-I-N-C-T-S. You get 25% off your purchase. Do so, it. Yeah, do it because we love saying bamboobies. We love having them as our sponsor. We don't ever want them to not be our sponsor because then I wouldn't be able to say bamboobies. We love you. <laughs> we love you. Tell us about toxins. I'd love to talk more about it. Yeah, you know, it's basically the idea is that you want to do the best you can and not beat yourself up about the toxins you can't avoid. But that means um, one of my biggest concerns is glyphosate because there's a MIT researcher, a professor named Stephanie Seneff. And Dr. Seneff has a book called Toxic Legacy. And it talks about more than just glyphosate, but glyphosate is the main ingredient in Roundup. And yesterday, I was taking a walk to the park with my husband and we saw someone spraying their lawn with glyphosate on the way to the park. And on the way back from the park, we saw this sweet little boy who must have been two or three years old with no shoes on running around happy on that lawn. And what's happening there is his little body has been absorbing this highly, highly toxic substance. Now, most people know, have heard about glyphosate because it did make the media because we now have connected it to cancer. And it's pretty clear that that is, that it is carcinogenic. What most people don't know that's very relevant, I think for your listeners, is that it has fertility effects. So it can impede your fertility in terms of it making it much harder to get pregnant. It can also cause birth defects. So, you know, in today's day and age, you have a baby who's born with multiple health problems and you're told that it's genetic but you have to look at what's turning on and off those genes. And the more you expose your body and your baby and your pregnancy to toxins, the, the, the harder it can be. Another toxin that came up that most people and our audience today was very sophisticated with a lot of super smart. I was going to say super educated, but like Dr. Stu said earlier, you do not have to be educated to be smart. In fact, those sometimes exist in inverse proportion. Um, but we talked about also acetaminophen, which is the main ingredient in Tylenol. And um, it's actually, you know, glyphosate and acetaminophen can work synergistically in a very, very negative way. So what Tylenol does that your doctor is never going to tell you is that it impedes your body's ability to create glutathione. And glutathione is a, is a detoxifying element. It's the most wonderful substance that your body creates in order to get rid of toxins. So you're exposed to toxins all the time. If you can get rid of them, it actually doesn't matter. The issue is when you have, when you impede the body's ability to detoxify 
and the toxins stay in your body and they might get into your brain or they get into your reproductive system, right? That's the problem. So when you are, when you're doing something like having a vaccine or you're being exposed to glyphosate and then on top of that, you get, you take Tylenol, you're actually really shutting down your detox pathways and it's really problematic. And of course, every doctor in America, if you call the doctor and you say, my baby has a fever, they're going to say, oh, if the baby's older than six months old, they'll say alternate between Tylenol and Motrin. If the baby's younger than six months old, they'll tell you to take Tylenol. It's literally the worst advice your doctor could give you. Oh, I, there's other bad advice, by the way. No, that's true. <laughs> Fair enough. It's tied for the worst advice. But if your pediatrician is, is recommending children's Tylenol, it's time to find it. So what are your recommendations uh, alternatively? Before she, before she answers that, um, the body, again, we on the podcast always talk about the body seems to know what to do when we predict to trust the body. But you have to ask yourself, when you're sick or when, you're, or when your body is fighting something, why does it get a fever? Yeah. And why are we trying to suppress the fever? It's kind of like the same vitamin K argument. Why are babies born vitamin K deficient? And if nature is so smart, wouldn't they make babies have vitamin K? But maybe there's a reason they don't have vitamin K. And the same thing here. There's something about um, having a fever, maybe not 104, 105, but there's something about not getting rid of a fever. You know, the minute we tell people that, oh, a fever in a pregnancy is 100.4 degrees. And, you know, if it gets above that, people are probably conditioned now to take aspirin or Tylenol or Motrin or whatever to break their fever. But Jen is going to, has gave an unbelievably good point today. And I'd like her to tell our audience a little bit about yeah, well, okay, so that's the, your question list was, what do you do if you have a fever? So the first thing you do is that you feel happy <laughs> because yeah, the fever is making you feel bad, but a fever indicates a robust immune system. A fever means your body is fighting off whatever it needs to fight off, whether that be a viral infection or a bacterial infection or some other, you know, kind of pathogen. And so one of the things I pointed out was it's not just humans that get fevers. We see fever in fish. We see fever in reptiles. We know that rabbits and dogs have fever. So you have to ask yourself what kind of evolutionary um, you know, role a fever is playing. And, and one of the points that I didn't get to make is that there's research from 2019 now that shows that heat from the fever is boosting two of the molecules that help your white blood cells get from the blood vessels into the lymph nodes. So the fever is actually really beneficial to bring your immune system online. Once those white blood cells are in the lymph nodes, they team up with other immune cells to attack infectious germs. And so that's one of the biochemical explanations for why we get a fever that was published research from 2019. But what I think is really interesting about that too is that we've seen that when you reduce fever in children, it actually can be harmful. So children with sepsis, which can be life-threatening, they do much better when, when their fever is not reduced. And often the fever reduction is actually correlated with higher risk of death. The same is true with children who have um, influenza, the common cold and chickenpox. These are all instances that, has been, that have been studied in the scientific literature that show that reducing the fever can, be, can actually exacerbate the symptoms. So, you know, that said, when you have a little baby, and I should say a very tiny newborn who's spiking a fever, that's, an, that's indicated 
to go to the hospital. You need to, when you have a tiny little, very vulnerable newborn, so we're talking in the first few weeks of life, you're not gonna mess around with that and I want you to go get emergency care or bring that baby to someone like Dr. Sue. Um, but <laughs> not Dr. Sue's baby. Well, well, okay, yeah. fair enough. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd rather that you go to a trusted doctor who's really smart and evidence-based and that you go to the hospital, but I will say, and I don't know if you all agree with me, that when you need really emergency care, um, I think we have hospitals depending on the state and the hospital that can do a really good job. But, you know, with a child who has a fever, you're, you're feeling like you want to reduce the fever. So if you're not going to give them Tylenol, which you're never going to do again, and if you've given your kids Tylenol for years, you're not going to worry about that. But, but you know, the acida medicine is not only really bad for a child's liver, and you can look that up, that's information from the FDA, but it's also, and so you're, you know, it's also very bad for their brains. And so now we have, there's a there's a meta-analysis that I think is excellent. It's a huge review from um, 2017, and it was done by researchers at Duke University and Harvard University. One of the, um, the lead authors on that is William Parker, and your listeners can look that up, and it talks about how um, acetaminophen is implicated in brain damage. And so we, you know, these researchers believe that one of the reasons why we're seeing these continuing to rise incidents of autism and other kinds of brain damage in children is because of the negative synergistic effect of Tylenol. So if you give vaccines and Tylenol at the same time, you're really creating damage, potentially creating damage in a child's brain. And that seems to be what the standard recommendation would be if you child gets the vaccine and then spikes a fever that evening, the pediatrician's going to tell them to which is actually so against the literature, not only because of the autism um, acetaminophen connection, which anybody who's paying attention should know about now, but it's also against the literature because, and this is very accepted, you know, the acetaminophen is a controversial question, but what's not controversial is that we have science that was done that showed that giving Tylenol blunts the vaccine immune response. So that is not controversial information. And that information came out, if I'm not mistaken, in like 20, in 2009. So no doctor should be recommending before or after vaccines because they should know, they should be paying attention to the science, which of course they never do, but they should know that it actually impedes the vaccine's ability to do its job, right? And the body's ability to do its job based on the vaccine, you know, immune response. So. So, so but, but let's go back to people listening. Maybe someone out there has a baby right now with a fever and they're like, wait, I, you know, my, my child is limp. So, but, you know, our concerns about fever is that you do not want a child to get dehydrated. And so continuing to offer as much breast milk as possible or any of the child's favorite drinks. So we started talking about, you know, not, not having bad for you stuff. Well, if a child is sick, uh, you know, and the only thing they want to drink is, is ginger ale, then you give the child ginger ale. You, I mean, what I mean by that is just hydration is super important. The other thing you can do with a small baby who has a fever is you, you take off your shirt, you take off all the baby's clothes, even their diaper, and you hold them on your chest. And your body temperature is going to help that little baby regulate their body temperature. It's also going to help them, you know, when you're sick, it's just, and you're lethargic that, you know, having a place where you're just totally safe and loved and comforted, that can be really helpful with a fever. If you want the fever to go down, you can do, you know, you can do a, a, a washcloth 
actually a warm washcloth and with a little bit of lavender oil on it. And you can do that, you know, on the baby. Um, that can be really helpful. Some people don't want to do that because the, it will evaporate so fast and it can create, you know, it can make the baby cold. But the most important thing is just to try to is comfort measures without necessarily reducing the fever and then just let the body do its job. Our bodies are amazing. So your child has a fever, just think to yourself, all right, that means that their immune system is coming online. Hallelujah. I agree with everything you just said. Obviously, I love that you um, supplied us with scientific uh, backing for that because it's something that I have talked to clients about for a long time. And, and with my children, I often you know, let the fever kind of burn things off. What about pain? So we're, ta we're, we're talking about fever and acetaminophen, but let's talk about just in general, like if you have a child who's got pain or if you have a pregnant mom or a postpartum mom who's got pain, you know, you kind of, I always weigh it out, um, you know, to try not to do pain relievers as much as possible and use alternatives. But there are times when you're like, you know, like postpartum, I would be like, take some pain reliever. <laughs> like you had your baby, you know, we don't want you to be uncomfortable when you're nursing and you're having those contractions. So what do you recommend? So I should, I should give the caveat that I am not a doctor, right? I'm a researcher and a, and a you know, and I've spent the last, almost 20 years looking at all of the science and, and I'm also the I'm not all of the science, but as much science as I can read, that's my idea of having fun is to like nerd out on peer reviewed science. Um, but, and then I have four children. So I'm nothing that I'm saying should be construed as medical advice. This should all be just <laughs> mom to mom. Fair enough. Um, that's right. Um, Fair enough. And by the way, you know a lot more than almost 95% of the doctors. Do. Um, I don't know. Well, yeah. You can be humble. I can be bragging for you. <laughs> You can tease me. That's fine. I mean, part of the reason I didn't want to, when you said you could bring the babies to doctors too, is, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert in babies. I don't take care of babies. I wasn't trained in that. I'm an expert in neonatal resuscitation. I can take care of a newborn in the first couple of days of life. But, but as far as when, after that, it's, it's not something that I would be comfortable dealing with. I was joking, but. Right. right. It's more about, right. A pediatrician or a family physician or, and, you know, but but to answer, and you know, no one likes to be in pain. The, the thing I didn't say about the fever is that when you have a fever and your body is mounting a big immune response, you just want to sleep. You want to be someplace, you know, quiet and calm and usually dark. And that actually has a function, which is it takes you away from the herd. You're not, you don't want to be around people and your kids don't want to be around people. And, you know, that way that gives your chance, your body a chance to rest and fight off the infection. And it also actually serves this interesting purpose of, you know, of, of, of uh, isolating yourself, which is this thing that the public health officials have been like, you know, stay away from other people, stay safe. Well, your body has a way of telling you when you need to do that, right? But the pain question is an excellent question. And um, I actually have a really long article on my website that's called, uh, that's about natural alternatives to Tylenol. So it's, um, I, I think it's called Tylenol better, safer remedies. I don't remember. And actually, you will not be able to find it if you Google it because my website is so censored. Um, but it's a, it, it goes through all of the different times when uh, Tylenol is being recommended and the natural, safer alternatives. But in terms of pain, so one of my favorite pain relievers is turmeric. Um, and there's some, I don't know if either of you use turmeric, but it's 
uh, it's a wonderful, effective antioxidant. You can actually start off for a adult, you can start off with like a quarter of a teaspoon in, you know, in a glass of water and drink it. That golden milk is something that's been getting a lot of, um, you know, for a while it was very popular. Um, some people have concerns about turmeric because it says that it can impede iron absorption. So if you are postpartum and you're going to try turmeric, which I think is a very safe, it's used in Ayurvedic medicine all the time. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a food and you can actually eat the whole root so you can get it organic um, ground turmeric from the health food store. I, for my kids, I would buy little capsules and I'd put the turmeric in the capsules and they would take them like a pill. And I told uh, Dr. Paul Thomas, my co-author, who is a pediatrician, to tell his patients to do that. He said, Jennifer, that you're crazy. No one is as such a crazy hippie as you and no one's going to do that. What are you talking about? But to buy turmeric as a supplement is was way too expensive for my budget when my kids were little and I never did that. So just taking it ground up and eating it in some plain whole milk yogurt or, you know, in a little bit of honey, that can be really helpful. But if you're postpartum and you've also lost blood and whatever, I would also say that you should either be taking some ferritin with that or an iron, a whole food based iron supplement, or just eat some really rare red meat, which boy, that tastes good right after you've had a baby forgive the vegetarian, forgive me vegetarians who are listening. It, it, I was a vegetarian for 20 years and I had that, I had my first baby and one of the best meals of my entire life was a rare steak. But in any case, that, so that's, you know, there's other really effective pain relievers. So sometimes with headaches, with, they can be caused by magnesium deficiencies, which also can lead to constipation. And I know right after you've had a baby, constipation can really be hard, especially if you've gone through a really difficult labor or if you have hemorrhoids from pushing, which happened to me because I had a hospital birth where they were screaming at me to push and I'm flat on my back. It didn't happen with my other birth. Um, that was my first baby. But so um, taking a magnesium supplement, getting into an Epsom salt bath, or even if any of you have, if you've ever seen this, you can actually spray magnesium on, which is wonderful for those sore muscles. Um, but often the underlying cause of the pain is gonna be something like a, a, a vitamin or a mineral deficiency. I could go, there's a lot more I could say about this. I mean, because there's also white willow bark tea. And I will tell you, I am very interested, you know, we, we don't let people have aspirin anymore. We say that salicylic acid, which is the main ingredient in aspirin is somehow dangerous. And that's because it's connected, we believe, to RISE syndrome, which is so rare. And it's only if you're taking it while you have a viral infection. And, you know, it, it's very likely that the information that's linking aspirin to um, RISE disease is actually not even good science. And so I and old fashioned, I was born in 1969. I grew up taking children's aspirin and I actually love aspirin. Obviously it, the tummy problem could be an issue. Um, so if you're going to, but you know, aspirin to me has always been sort of a miracle drug. And even though it's very not PC, it's not in vogue in the medical establishment to sell someone to take aspirin. Aspirin is actually salicylic acid, which is which if you look in the Egyptian papyrus, you will see, talk about that white willow bark. And so you wanna be the, the funky hippie way is to make tea out of white willow bark. The regular way is, is likely to be buffered aspirin or you just take aspirin again with something very probiotic or like, you know, like a, like a whole milk yogurt. 
And then, this is anecdotal, but I've used aspirin all my life. And uh, there's a lot of people that still recommend uh, a baby aspirin a day for certain conditions in pregnancy, uh, certain preventions of heart attacks. So, you know, I don't know that it's as, I think the rise syndrome thing was a big deal in the, what, the 80s or 90s yeah, or something like that. Yeah, it was actually like Ralph Nader who really pushed through. But it's, idea. I think that's faded away and there's yeah. some things to worry about. I don't think rise syndrome is even. They're recommending baby aspirin for almost every pregnant woman these days for so many different reasons. Um, so it's actually, I think, a little overused. Yeah, well, so if you don't it. mind, I made some notes of a couple of things I want to go back to because you're that... I was going to say rant, but that's the wrong word. But that that long explanation that you gave us was full of so many rich, uh, so much rich information. So first of all, um, we will link that article in our show notes so that people can get access to it and not have to worry about um, having challenges looking for it. The other thing I was thinking, um, you know, if if you are talking to pediatricians and trying to make decisions about vaccines and all of that, it probably would be a good idea to discuss with your pediatrician beforehand um, the information that you're talking about, about acetaminophen and bringing them together so that you can have a plan ahead of time and know how your doctor feels about that. Because if you're trusting that person and then you call them and that's the only recommendation that you have from them, then you're going to feel scared and frustrated because you've got a baby now who is not feeling well and you're not sure what to do. So I think a plan ahead of time would be really good. Um, I did want to mention about constipation. You know, this is one of my theories when we're talking about like the body's wisdom. I really believe that constipation and postpartum is part of our body's wisdom because it knows that most of the time, you know, before we had sutures and all of that, we had wounds. And so I think the body has this way of knowing that it needs to slow down that digestion so that we don't have the potential of introducing bacteria into these wounds in the first couple of days so they have time to heal, so. I love that. It, I was yeah. also, um, it's, it's my grandfather, right? A little, a little bit of traditional wisdom. Again, this is not necessarily scientific. My grandfather used to say, if you have a headache, that you're constipated. I'd be like, grandpa, come on. But you know what? <laughs> He's almost always right. <laughs> and so a lot of times, you know, if you're thinking about trying to get to the root cause of what's going on in your life, you know, if you have a headache, it's kind of ridiculous. Sounds It sounds ridiculous to say, take some extra magnesium. And if you're constipated and you have a good bowel movement, your headache's going to go away, but I will, it will go away every single time. It also could be that you're really stressed out and that you need to slow down. And so things like taking an Epsom salt bath or meditating, which is something that's very hard for a type A personality like me to learn to do. But if you can take 10 or 15 minutes to just, you know, to just stop and center yourself and breathe and do some kind of meditation. For me, since I'm a very restless meditator, it doesn't help to try to do the Zen version where I have to clear my mind and let the thoughts be bubbles that pop and go into the atmosphere. I like to have a mantra. I actually do transcendental meditation, so I have a mantra, but I've also heard people just doing some kind of mantra like it could be the word relax, it could be the word love, it could be, you know, any kind of word that feel that makes you kind of take a deep breath and relax and your headache is going to disappear and you're going to feel a million times better. You know, it gets back to the whole body, trusting the body's 
way of doing things. And, and, and the idea that sometimes you have a headache because you're dehydrated. And yeah. the colon's main function is to reabsorb moisture. So it all goes together that your grandfather, who thought when you're constipated, you, you know, you have a headache, you're probably, or vice versa, I can't remember which one it was, but probably both of them result from the fact that you probably weren't, you know, you're not, he's suggesting that people aren't drinking enough water, which all makes perfect sense. It all, this is a theory, it makes sense. Things slow down because the body needs to heal. Um, people are, you're breastfeeding, your need for fluid is going up. You're probably not readjusted the amount of fluid that you're used to taking in every day. You need to take more, need more calories, you need all those things. And so your body is doing what it's supposed to do. We're just not responding in the way we were supposed to. Because we don't, we have limited time, I wanted to take this in a slightly different tack a little bit. Because everything you said, I mean, you're you've got so much wisdom, but it comes from the idea that you started writing about health issues. I don't know if that's where you intended to take your journalism degree and all that stuff. I don't exactly, if you could tell us a little bit about your journey because you, you wrote books like um, Your Baby, Your Way, and then you wrote uh, The Vaccine-Friendly Plan. I think that was in that order, right? And obviously those are two books that are very important in, in Bliss and My Professions. How did that happen? Yeah, I, well, it's funny because I actually don't have a degree in journalism. I have... Um, I was in graduate school at Emory Makes University. Makes you a better journalist, by the way, too. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it's the same thing, uh, right? I don't know. But I was in graduate school at Emory University, and my husband also was a graduate student. And we, um, we were in love, and we were having a baby. And I have to say, I was not particularly young, although I was a lot younger than I am now. Um, and I had wanted my whole life to have a baby. It just felt like this incredible miracle. I mean, I knew I just loved babies. And I, I felt like this was a miracle to have this pregnancy. And every time I went to the doctor, we went to this, um, this doctor's practice. I actually was with these hospital midwives at the beginning. And after every appointment, I would sit in the car and cry. And I felt like every appointment for prenatal visits, I was being shamed. I was being scared. I was told at one point, this one hospital midwife said to me, if I refused to do the glucose test that I would quote, buy myself a C-section. She used those words. You're going to, you won't do this test. You're going to buy yourself a C-section. And just to tell you what happened at that visit, I asked about what the test entailed. She told me I was going to have to drink this disgusting, really, really sweet liquid. And I was really sensitive to sugar in that pregnancy, incredibly sensitive to the point where I could barely eat fruit. I stopped, I have a sweet tooth. I stopped eating any kind of candy, sweets, cakes or anything. And the idea, and I was so nauseated in that pregnancy, just, just filled with morning sickness. But my morning sickness was at noon and at night. And I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I'd make my husband come with me into the kitchen and I'd eat like a piece of broccoli. because, And then that was the thing that would help me not feel completely nauseated. So when this midwife said, I needed to do the glucose testing. I asked a lot of questions and I said, what would happen if I, if it comes back high? And she said, well, we would put you on a different diet, but they had never taken the time to ask me about my diet. And I said, what does that diet look like? And they, she said, well, you wouldn't be eating any sugar or any um, sweets. And we would probably, you know, cut out, we want you to eat all whole grains and you'd have to ha have a higher protein intake. And we want you to, you know, cut out refined, uh, grains and sugars. And I said, well, that's how I'm eating right now. I, that was exact. She described 
the diet that I was on. And she said, no, 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 you have to do this test. And it was a terrible situation where I, you know, I, all you want to do when you're pregnant is whatever is best for your baby. You care more about your health than you have in your life. And it's such a change point. And I was already eating basically a, a, a diabetic, you know, pre-diabetes, gestational diabetes diet. And so I declined, respectfully declined. And she told me I was going to have a seat. I was going to have a baby with a huge head who would, you know, be grossly anomalous and that I would end up with a C-section. And that was the last day that I went to the midwives and I actually changed the doctors in the practice because I thought that they would be gentler. So then what happened, there was a doctor I really liked. She was a young mom. She was dressed out and miserable in retrospect, but at least she seemed like she knew what she was doing. The only doctor that was, I really wanted a, a woman, forgive me, to, <laughs> to attend my birth. I didn't want a man to be looking at my vagina in a moment of total vulnerability. Totally understand that. And the only doctor on call was, yeah. uh, when, my, when I went into labor, was um, the only man in the practice and the only person that I had not met. And Which, I, by the way, is a classic example of what's wrong with fast medicine and the idea that you belong to a group and you got it's a it's a it's a roulette wheel to decide whether or not you're going to get who you're going to get and they're, if they're even going to know you. Just another problem with it. We've we've beaten to death on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, and it was so so I had this. So I should also say I was healthier than I'd ever been in my life. I was so excited about having a child that I wanted to have a baby my entire life, and I have big hips. And I was, I was exercising and moving every day. I only gained, I, I was heavy going into my pregnancy. So I only gained 20 pounds. I was sort of optimal weight, optimal health, like ready to rock this. And almost everything that could have gone wrong went wrong during that labor. And that did not need to happen. So I had the baby. I believed at the time because I had what I know now is Stockholm syndrome that, you know, being in the hospital saved my life. It wasn't until four months after that baby was born, but I didn't understand. I didn't understand why my body had failed. I thought the doctors had helped me survive. My body had failed, even though I knew I was made for this. Um, it wasn't until four months after that, that baby was born that I talked to a midwife, a home birth midwife. At the time we lived in Atlanta, she lived in Hippie, Oregon. And she said to me, she was this very matter of fact, woman, you probably know her, she's phenomenal. And she said, Jennifer, because I was describing my birth and kind of saying how, what a, you know, kind of what a bad job I did. I really beat myself up about it. And she said, Jennifer, an animal in nature who feels threatened during labor closes up and tries again later. And she just said it, that's all silence. And that was a really big aha moment. And then after that, I found Dr. Sue. I, we, you know, I, 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 I think it was like in the early days of YouTube and I found him saying something very similar and I was fascinated by that. And a few days after my baby was born, the reason why we had the baby in the hospital with the practice was because of my insurance. I had a tiny little newborn. I left the hospital and my insurance company denied the claim. And they said that my pregnancy was a pre-existing condition. I had had insurance for four years and, you know, throughout my whole graduate career. And so all of a sudden I'm 
with this tiny baby, you know, my breasts are leaking. I have hemorrhoids. Everything feels like it's going wrong. I'm having those postpartum moments and I'm, and I'm on the phone with the insurance company fighting with them. So I had to look at the bill. And what I saw in that bill was absolutely astounding to me because every single thing that I didn't want that they gave me was an additional charge. And I thought, oh my goodness, you know, they were telling me I had to have an epidural and they put that on the bill. They were telling me, you know, just for the, I mean, I didn't, I don't remember if I had Tylenol, but just for the Tylenol, I probably wouldn't have taken it. I didn't know about acetaminophen then, but you know, they mark up Tylenol 6,000%, 6,000% in the hospital. And I started to think, you know, it, 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 this was a journey, but it's, I'm answering your question. Basically, um, you know, I started thinking, oh my God, I thought that I had failed, but what about the systemic failure? What is going on in our medical system that is making a person like me not able to have an, an empowering and healthy and wonderful birth? And I thought I need to investigate this. And I, I used my skills from graduate school to do research and I started researching it. And, you know, I've been doing that research for the last 20 years. That's how I got started writing books. Can I mention the title of your first book? Yeah, of course. Okay, because it wasn't always your baby your way, right? Okay. Yeah, it was called The Business of Baby. Oh, yeah, yeah. We had that at the sanctuary. Yeah, it was called The Business of Baby. And when yeah. they reprinted it, uh, what, paperback or something, they changed the name because it got it got skewered by the New York Times uh, and some other people just for, I, I, for being honest, I guess, which is... Oh, I can tell that story. So, yeah, it, no, I mean, our listeners would love that story. I think. Well, so the the book was called the business of um the the business of baby, and the subtitle was what doctors don't tell you, what corporations try to sell you, and how to put your baby before their bottom line. And it's an investigation. It took me ten years. It, it you know it's accumulation of ten years of information. It took me about three years to write. And for that book, I went to Norway, um, Iceland. I went all over the United States, including Chicago and Boston um, and, you know, California, looking at different modalities so I could kind of investigate places where there are the lowest child mortality rates, where people are happiest with the maternity system and, and that kind of thing. And the New York Times, the Sunday Book Review decided to review the book, which is they choose fewer than 1% of the books that are submitted to them. It's a huge badge of honor to be in the New York Times and the Diane Reem show, which was very popular at the time, uh, it was on NPR, was also interested in interviewing me. And I did the pre-interview for the Diane Reem show. There's a there's a chapter in the book about cesarean birth and um, about how there's a huge financial incentive. This is when I interviewed, I found you too. Um, but a huge financial incentive on the part of doctors, hospitals, the whole system to give women C-sections because it's absolutely absurd that, you know, almost a third of American women's bodies don't work. <laughs> and that, that's, you know, twice the number of the World Health Organization. Like, what is it? Our, our bodies and our breasts are broken, but the bodies in Norway, you know, the Norwegians, even anyone who's immigrating from other countries have no problems having vaginal birth. I mean, how is that's what we do as women is we think that we did something wrong and we don't understand that we are that there's a systemic problem. And so the book started off talking about why is it so much safer to give birth in so many other countries in the business of baby. 
And the the funny thing is that um, that the reviewer that they gave it to at the New York Times absolutely freaked out. I mean, the book pushed every one of her buttons. She actually, I found an essay that she had written about how she had been tied down crucifix style. That was the word that she used, like Jesus Christ, so that her baby could be, you know, taken out of her via C-section. She had also had an ultrasound at every single appointment. And I also have a chapter in the book about ultrasounds. And so she panned the book. So that, that came out on Mother's Day. I was actually on tour. <laughs> I was going to three different, I was in, I was doing three events in Boston at the time. And my publisher was trying to get in touch with me because they wanted me to know. And, and in, the, in the meantime, the producer for the Diane Reem show was uh, like flabbergasted when she talked to me on the phone. She said to me, well, I had three C-sections. What's wrong with that? And I said to her, a C-section is an absolutely life-saving operation when it's done, when it's necessary. There are people here, and maybe you're one of them, who would not be here or who babies would not be alive if they didn't have access to C-sections. That can be true, and it can also be true that they're being overused because they're profitable for a for-profit, you know, sick care system. And and I said, I don't want you to believe anything I'm saying. Every single thing I'm telling you is fact-checkable, and you can go back and look at the peer-reviewed science. And, you know, it was such an awful conversation where she was silent. She goes, well, we're just going to wait for the New York Times to see what they say about your book. And so then the New York Times wrote that literally there's not one sentence in that entire book review of the business of baby that is that says anything about the book that makes you want to read it. It makes it sound like I pulled the entire book, 10 years of research out my left nostril. The last sentence of that review basically says, buyer beware, don't read this. Wow. And I was canceled from the Diane Reem show, or they didn't schedule me on the Diane Reem show. So my publisher, and meanwhile, so you were canceled before I was I was canceled before canceling became possible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so then when my publisher was going to reprint the book, I mean that you know the, the way it works in New York publishing is the book comes out in, in hardcover and then it comes out in paperback. And at first they said they weren't going to do a paperback edition, and I fought really hard against that and they said you know this is a really important book and I had people using it in alternative medical school programs and I had people writing to me and saying it changed their lives and I was doing all these events and I said don't not publish this book in paperback and they said well if we publish it in paperback you have to change the introduction because it's way too scary we'll update the book and we're going to change the name and you know so I and I said, fine. And I actually count that I've, I'm the author, the editor of eight books. I count because we did so much work to make it more palatable and less scary. Um, <laughs> you know, I count it as a different book, and, but it really is the same book. It was published in, in, in hardcover as a baby. It was published in paperback as your baby, your way. And I'll say one more thing, which is that you have to go through a, a legal review. I have a friend who wrote a book about the black market for organs where in, in countries where they will drug people and they will take out a kidney so that they can sell it on the black market. And I had been nervous about the legal review for my book. And he said, oh, Jennifer, it's no big deal. Like, I, you know, his book is on such a difficult topic. I mean, people are killed over the stuff. We're talking about big business. He said, oh, it'll just take you a couple of hours on the phone with the lawyer. Well, I was on the phone with a lawyer from my publisher for nine hours altogether because they were so nervous about every 
single thing that we were writing about because I take it on. I take on the formula industry. I take on the multi-billion dollar vaccine industry. I take on big medicine, big hospitals, all of it. And, you know, she was so careful. And that book was so, I spent thousands of dollars fact-checking that book just to be canceled by two women, both the producer from the Diane Reem show and the person who wrote the review of the book, who felt personally challenged by the fact that they probably did not need to have those C-sections. I think we should probably talk about our second sponsor today, which is Element, L-M-N-T. And Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix, which sort of we love. And with everything you need and nothing you don't, and Bliss always says. None of the BS. Lots of Just salt, like us. No, no sugar. Yeah, none of the BS, like us. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 No misinformation. <laughs> um, it's to help anyone with electrolyte needs. And, and a lot of the drinks that we drink nowadays, whether it's just plain water or whether it's something with sweeter, sweet stuff in it, it's not balanced for us. It's not as healthy as, um, as an electrolyte drink could be. And the way a lot of people are on the go and they're, fat, they're, they're not eating well or they're eating fast food or whatever, this is a way to help balance that out. We like it a lot because we think it's a good supplement for women in labor um, to have to, to mix them up and drink those rather than maybe drinking something like plain water or or even something sweet. I mean, there's great things to have calories in it. That's important. But Element is a good is a good uh, supplement for for our population. And you know what I was just thinking about? It's really great, too, that it's um, just a little packet that you can put in your water bottle so you're not producing a bunch of waste from a bunch of extra bottles as well. And birth workers can carry it around with them too, because birth workers would probably be drinking this stuff as well. Yeah. Put it in your birth bag. So if you want to um, get a free sample packet, all you do is go to uh, drink element, D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com backslash birthing instincts. And for the cost of shipping, which is $5, they'll send you a sample packet. So give them a shot. They help support our podcast. And thanks, Element. Thank you. And that that book came out originally 10 years ago, correct? Ish? Well, it was published in 2013. Yeah. And then it was yeah, almost 10 years ago. So my question to you, because this is something I feel, um, you know, you gave you gave really good uh information that you fact-checked and you know, statistics and all of that. Is it frustrating to you that the needle hasn't moved very much in 10 years? I always think about that list because I, Ina May Gaskin is someone whose work I've read for years and listened to her speak. And I've been fascinated by the work that she did at the farm, which I'm excited that you're going to be talking about on your next podcast. Um, and I always wonder, like, how do you deal with that? Like when you're trying, because I, I mean, Yes, it's frustrating, but I'll tell you my, you know, in Zen Buddhism, they say when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Mm -hmm. So when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And my goal, people say, why do you write about controversial issues? Like, why don't you just, because I can, I can make a living writing about, I've written for the lot, you know, about, about uh, Oregon and California wines. I've written, I've been on the front page of the of Smithsonian Magazine to write about the last herd of West African giraffes. I've written for the New York Times for many years, and I can write about a lot of other things. And I am somebody who has a wide 
variety of interests and things that I'm fascinated by. And I keep coming back to these topics and, you know, people say, why do you, why do you do that? Why, you know, and there's only one reason. And the reason is because I, I want to help people be as healthy and vibrant as they possibly can. And I want to help people at the margins and pregnant women in America are at the margins and little tiny newborn babies who have no say in how their bodies are being treated are at the margins. And so I feel like if my work can help one person, I mean, today at this conference, a mom came up to me, she has three, she had three children, one of her, her baby died and she was came up to me crying. And she said, she said that my book, you know, totally changed my book, changed her life and helped her family in countless ways. And so, yes, it's incredibly frustrating that we're still way overperforming C-sections, that our breastfeeding rates are so suboptimal that we have one of the highest infant mortality rates of the industrialized world, that we have probably the highest maternal mortality rate of the industrialized world. Those things make me crazy. And at the same time, when the student is ready, the teacher appears and the people who are ready to have vibrant health and embrace having, you know, children who grow up to survive and thrive and be the next generation are finding my work. And so I feel inspired by that every day. Well, I get that. I get that completely because that's, you know, that's what keeps us going, right? That we, we know in our small little world here that we're making a difference and it makes our life feel um, valuable. So I declared something here in Santa Barbara with, uh, with um, my soon to be student who's pretty immersed in the Santa Barbara community. And um, we're gonna take on having Santa Barbara have the highest home birth or community-based birthing statistics in the country. So that's my... That's what I, that's what I'm going for. So we'll see how we do, but it's that's, what happened, that's what happened to me is that after the, the, I had been interested in home birth because I, partly because I had a, an aunt who had been part of the women's movement and she had had her first baby out of hospital, her second baby at home. And she was very hands-off. She never talked to me about it, but I was really interested in home birth in my first, with my first baby, but we didn't have insurance. We couldn't find a midwife. Yeah, I mean, we didn't know how it was before the internet. We didn't sort of, we didn't have the wherewithal and I didn't know anybody really who had had a home birth. And then I was told that home birth was illegal in Georgia. And that turned out to be not exactly true. But then, and my husband, that was another really big reason was that my husband was, um, was really nervous about the idea of having a home birth. And it's funny because he's come so far from there. And after that hospital experience where I was really emotionally and physically abused in the hospital. There's no question that I was mistreated in so many ways and not supported in any of the ways that I needed to be supported. My husband saw how we were treated and he said, I'm so sorry. And so baby number two, we did my way. <laughs> baby number three, even more so. So, and then I had a fourth child. So we've had, we had one horrible hospital birth and three incredible home births, each one more empowering and energizing than the last. And, you know, I feel like maybe I had to go through the fire. I'm so impressed with women who have home births as their first births. I don't, I guess I wasn't ready emotionally or intellectually or spiritually or whatever it was, but I certainly was the second time around. And that was incredibly healing for me. Yeah. And I think that that's common. And I would like to see 
you know, culturally us having a shift so that we don't have to be traumatized before we can make that kind of choice for ourselves. Um, I did want to make a couple corrections to something you said in your story, and it seems odd that I would correct your story, but I want I want to I want to say it because I don't want our listeners to be left with something that you said. So um, you said something about you were talking about your first birth and how you know you had done all these things that were that were um, you know doing it the right way and taking really good care of yourself, and that you have big hips. So we know that having big hips on the outside does not necessarily equate to what's happening on the inside of your pelvis. So if you have the opposite and you have small hips, that does not mean that your baby is not going to fit outside of your pelvis. I the other thing is that you and wait, and I would just want to say that I have a cousin who is absolutely tiny. She gave birth to an, and she has little tiny, tiny hips and she gave birth vaginally to an 11 pound baby. And she had been a C-section baby herself. And you are absolutely 100% right. And I do happen to have very nice hips. Thank you very much. And that doesn't matter at all. And I really appreciate your correction. I hope that all your listeners know that their little teeny tiny hips are just as nice as my nice size. I have, I have nice hips too. Don't you love that, that uh, booties are finally in? Are they? <laughs> oh yeah. Booties yeah, are finally in. In the black community, the bigger the kiss and the better the person. But that's right. I'm not yeah. I love that. And then the other thing you said is I only gained 20 pounds, which was optimal. And I think in the medical world, they often talk about that. But, but from a midwife's perspective, what we usually say is one pound a week. So it would be, you know, 40 pounds is totally normal in a pregnancy. So that, that's not having nothing to say with you. You're a brilliant, very smart woman. But I just wanted to make sure that our, our um, fellow travelers weren't list, like left with that as being optimal. And I want to just add that, that listen to the people talk after the conference today. Was, a lot of people stood up um, to identify themselves during the conference. And a lot of them were, were nurses or other hospital workers who, who essentially lost their job or quit or were happy to quit. Yeah. <laughs> some of the mandates and things that were going on. And, and when I asked you the question about how did you start writing about this whole thing? And it really, it took, a, it took an experience that happened to you. And a lot of us, like right now, I'm a bliss last year, right now, me, I'm sort of in this transition period. I'm not exactly sure what comes next, but I know it will reveal itself to me. So you do what you can until your destiny is revealed to you. Your destiny was revealed to you in, in that moment. A lot of people don't have that you know, uh, watershed moment. They just it's somehow they they just meander around and they eventually find out what they ended up doing. They say, "How did I ever get here?" But but for people like me or Bliss or whatever, um, you know, it's a and these other people that spoke up. This is an opportunity, all right. Um, I think one of our guests in the past, I can't remember if it was Marin or somebody else, said the term "gifted an opportunity," and when things change or things, bad things happen, there are several ways you can respond to them. And one of them is the ways that you responded to it or the way that I responded when I left the hospital-based world. And, and I had a really good conversation with one of the nurses. She's looking for, what should I do next? And I said, whatever it is, it's going to be great and it's going to be an adventure for you. And, it's, and the fact is that you were, you, were, you were drowning in your current work. You hated what you were doing. 
You were doing things that you knew were wrong. You couldn't say anything. Why would you want to continue in that? But it's hard to let go of the rock because you don't know what's down the street. I'm using a lot of metaphors, but that's because I'm a metaphor user. <laughs> but, <laughs> but your point is really well taken. And, you know, in the moment, it can be so hard because you don't know, you know, as Shakespeare says, sweet are the uses of adversity, right? So something really awful happens and you think, why did this happen? Why me? Or why couldn't it have been this other way? Or you spend years even ruminating on something. And then it turns out that those are those moments of richness and change and growth. And in fact, we often see big developmental jumps after a child's had a, had a I'm tying this together, but after a child has had a, has been sick or had a fever, and then all of a sudden they've made a huge developmental leap. And so, you know, it's kind of part of maybe the nature of being human that sometimes we have to suffer in order to get to a different and better place. And so I am so grateful. I mean, my, my daughter came home one day, we, we, she went to a Waldorf school where the vast majority of the people were born at home and not only at home, but, you know, on a moonlit night in a puddle of water outside their ranch. I mean, these are the hippiest of hippies. And she said, mom, why did you have me in the hospital? All of my friends were born at home. And, you know, she was kind of outraged and indignant. It was such a funny question. I, I, I needed to have that experience in order to be able to have a different experience. And to, and to make the difference that you're making, you know, it, it ignited the passion within you to do this research. And, and like you said, you're making a difference in other people's lives. And that was meant to be. Yeah. And having, having more than just stage one thinking, I mean, the medical model that we, that exists in the industrial medical complex right now is, is safety uberalis. It's essentially, we're going to Whatever we, we're going to intervene, we're going to we're going to do stuff without any thought about the downstream consequences of it. And you've mentioned several things today, and we talked about it at the conference too about they they they, they you know want to vaccinate because of that that's going to prevent you from getting this disease. But well, preventing you from getting this disease means you might have other diseases. You talk. I mean, we won't get into it now because we're going to run out of time. But you know, if you don't, if for those of us you raise ask people who had measles. Who had mumps? And I was one of the few people that was old enough to have had, had chickenpox too. And you're saying that I have a lower chance of having heart disease and other things because of that. But the medical model, again, profit-driven, probably almost for sure now, is is doesn't care about any of that stuff. You know, the baby needs to be fed formula. The baby needs to have a vitamin K shot. That well, what's the long-term consequences of that? We don't we don't care. We don't care. So I know that people who follow you um, are, are really into. And the last thing I'd like to talk about, real briefly, if you can, is how it came, how the vaccine-friendly plan came around, because all our listeners know about that book, all right? And everyone we recommend it to every single client that comes in. But did you did you and Paul get together because you both happened to be in Oregon, or how did that all work out? Yeah. So um, in what year was it? In 20, um, I think it was in 2015, the Oregon legislature decided that there was a crisis among school children, that 7% of school children in Oregon were missing their vaccines, which was absolutely not true. What was true was that Oregonians are highly informed, I'm not going to use the word educated, um, and 
you know, many, many families decide not to do some vaccines and some families decide not to do all vaccines. So if a child in Oregon was missing just a hepatitis B vaccine, and your listeners know that hepatitis B is a sexually transmitted disease that no school child is going to give to anybody else or have any possibility of catching, they were counting that as an unvaccinated child. They were, you know, in that 7%. So there was a huge campaign on the part of the Democratic legislators um, to try to take away vaccine choice in Oregon. And so I had a friend um, call me up and say, will you come and testify in front of the state legislature to try to protect our rights? And I said, absolutely. And Dr. Paul, who I didn't know at the time, Dr. Paul Thomas, closed his practice for the day, got a bus and put everyone on it who wanted to go and went to the legislature. And I, I gotta be totally honest in this story, Sue and Bliss, um, the, the, the room was packed. Almost everyone who spoke on both sides of this issue said absolutely absurd things. And I was sitting there taking notes with my blood pressure rising up to my eyebrows because I was so annoyed by the inaccuracies of both the people who were very, very against all vaccines and the people who were very, very in in favor of mandating and legislating the vaccine. And there was one man there who was absolutely brilliant. And he got, you know, he, he, he gave the legislatures a packet of information that was literally one inch thick. And he got up, they cut him off, they were so rude to him. And he said, you know, I am Dr. Paul Thomas, I have one of the biggest pediatric practices in the state of Oregon, and I want to tell you about my kids and how well they're doing. And he said, basically, I make judicious changes to the vaccine schedule to make sure that kids are, you know, protected against infectious diseases. And I will tell you that these changes have resulted in having the healthiest children in the state. And it's true. I mean, he has one of the healthiest pediatric practices in the country. Every single person in the government should be looking at the data from his practice to figure out what he's doing right. When Paul started talking, you could hear a pin drop and his testimony was absolutely brilliant. And I thought, how is it possible that I don't know this doctor? I, I feel like I try to meet every single medical doctor who's thinking a little bit outside the box. And I had never heard of him before. And, you know, it, it was such interesting testimony and he wanted to get in touch with me and I wanted to get in touch with him and we both sat down and said that you know we got together for coffee afterwards we had we had mutual friends and he said that he wanted to write a book about vaccines and I said I wanted to write a book about vaccines and 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 our book is so much more than that it's much more about how to ensure lifelong good health um did you want to write a book about vaccines before that meeting or did that so, just inspire you? Yeah, I mean, Your Baby, Your Way has a chapter on vaccines. and But the, it, it, I did. I'd always been thinking that there's so much more to say. I mean, there's still so much more to say. Um, so that listening, that whole fight with the legislature, which we won, by the way, California lost. And I also was helping advocate for freedom in California. Um, you know, you got your religious exemptions taken away in Oregon, which only has um, 4 million people. You've got 40 million people in California. You're a much bigger state. Um, but we won that fight and we won it again and we won it again. We keep winning and they keep coming back and it's going to come back again. And I got really burnt out, which is one of the reasons why I'm not living in Oregon currently. Um, but I think that 
this idea that parents don't know what's in the best interest of their children's health and that we have to nanny state them and tell them, you know, how to keep their kids safe and healthy and that you have no idea about your own health. That's so antithetical to everything I stand for. I believe in empowering people to make the best choices and then trusting them and letting them do And You know, we don't, that book is not prescriptive. It's more of here's the information, do with, do with it what you will because your individual circumstances are gonna be different. And yes, Dr. Paul does recommend some of the vaccines, um, but he also says that if anyone has a concerning reaction, and this is part of his plan, if he sees any kind of problems with the vaccines that are being given, you stop and you don't do them. You don't do more and you, you figure out because you have to do a risk benefit analysis and you have to figure out if the risk of having a vaccine reaction outweighs the risk of having the infectious disease. And, you know, that's what we're seeing in America is we have the most over vaccinated nation basically on the planet because of our profit driven system, not because of health. And because, and partly because of the uh, 1986 law, which makes it that, that there's no liability. And then that, so they're, they're, they're violating their own, uh, the federal law that talks about, testing and quality, they don't even follow that. And you know what's really interesting is that, I mean, I also was interested in vaccines because right after that very difficult hospital experience, I had a nurse come at me with a hepatitis C vaccine. And I said, I said, wait a second. I was a very educated person. I said, you know, I, my husband and I have been in a monogamous relationship for over three years. And we both were tested when we got our marriage license. I don't have hepatitis B. He doesn't have hepatitis B. That's a sexually transmitted disease. And I said to the nurse, I'm just going to talk to my doctor my, or my daughter's doctor. And she went ballistic on me. She was furious. Like I had done something horrible. She made it sound like I was saying I wanted to cut my baby up and put her in the trash can. And all I said was I need a couple of days to decide. And, I, you know, in my postpartum hormonal state, I felt so guilty about that. Like, oh, my God, have I done something horrible by saying give me a couple of days? But I also, it raised a red flag for me. Why would she be angry at me for saying my child has no chance of catching hepatitis B? Let me talk to the doctor, the pediatrician who actually knows about these kinds of things. And, you know, that that also set me on the so, well, the conclusion, the conclusion is that the woman is completely brainwashed because there's nothing financially in it for her. So she's competing. Well, she might have gotten upset because she had to prepare the vial. You know, she already had opened well, she, up. She the, drew it up. I mean, maybe, maybe, I don't know. I mean, I, I once interviewed a, a, a postpartum labor and delivery nurse who would, who would do the hepatitis C shot into the pillow because she could not do that to children. And then she quit her job, you know, because it's so harmful and so many, but not only is that vaccine not, you know, if your listeners do every vaccine on the schedule, the one thing to skip is the birth and infant series of hepatitis C. That, that vaccine has 250 micrograms of aluminum. If you have a premature baby, you are, you are grossly overdosing that child with aluminum. And then the vitamin K shots, which are, of course are not a vaccine, but two of the three brands that we looked at also include aluminum and nobody is counting up the cumulative effects of aluminum. So- Yeah, we did, we did, we talked a little bit about vitamin K and also it's contraindicated, contraindicated to give it intramuscularly and that's how it's given. Right, it's, I mean, it's just so disappointing and ridiculous, you know? So that's how you got 
together with Paul and you guys wrote the book and the rest is history. Yeah, well, and we wrote that book together and Paul's amazing. I mean, he makes me look lazy. He's the kind of person who says, I'll have this for you on Tuesday and on Sunday night he gets it to you. And I'm like, how does he do that? But he's like, he's on fire with the work that he does. And so we wrote that book that came out. Um, we, we met in 2015. The book came out in 2016. And then we wrote another book together called The Addiction Spectrum, which came out in 2018. Um, Oh. And I'm working on a book now. That book is about holistic approaches to solving addiction, which is another one of I saw that. I saw that one on there and I definitely um I'm gonna check it out. I'm it I'm out. not an addict, but I have got a lot of family history and it's just one of those things that I'm very interested in. So yeah. Thank you so much. It was uh I wish I was sitting there next to you guys and we were, you know, gonna go out and have a beer or whatever. Um, it looks like you guys are having a really good time. So I'm feeling a little envious. Um, yeah, but, uh, but thanks for sharing uh, her with me, Stu, and with our fellow travelers. Um, I know that everybody is just going to eat up all of this amazing information, um, that you've given us today. Could you tell us again, the best way for people to find you? So my website is www.jennifermargulis.net. So jennifermargulis.net. And then I, and if you go to um, the articles tab there, you're going to find um, tons of information about Tylenol, about home birth, about hospital birth, about healthy living and healthy eating and that kind of stuff. And then you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter. And then I also have a sub stack that I just started, which is very interesting. So you can also find me. It's called Vibrant Life on Substack. And will your Epoch Times articles be linked through your other website too? Oh yeah, well I should do that more. Uh, you can I'm I contribute two articles a week to the Mind and Body section of the Epic Times or the Epoch Times. Um, Epic which I, Times. We can call it either way. Um, I've heard it pronounced both ways, including by my own editors. So I don't know what the correct pronunciation is, but you can uh, you know so that that is a non pharma funded real journalism paper and I actually really encourage people to subscribe it's not expensive and I feel like they're doing the kind of journalism that everyone should be doing but they aren't and they're not afraid to talk about really controversial topics from a from a much more balanced perspective than what we're getting in the liberal mainstream media so you can also go to Jennifer Margulis I'm, I mean there's a whole tab for me and you'll you can see literally dozens and dozens of articles if you want to read my more journalistic work yeah and I, and I subscribe but it's I think seven dollars and 95 cents a month and that's that's a lot cheaper than a box of frosted flakes <laughs> <laughs> Is and, a it? and a lot better for you too so listen, uh, I am thrilled to be able to spend this time with you and have lunch with you last week. Um, I want to thank our listeners for for staying with us through this through all these times. Um, we love doing our podcast. We love having people on. You've got more wisdom than so many. I mean, just it's it's so amazing to sit and listen to you. I've heard you speak now several times. You're an amazing speaker, and it's it's an honor. Thank you. Thank right. you for having me. I appreciate it. So much. And, and I want to thank our sponsors again, as always. So please uh, look into Element and look into Bamboobies, and we will uh, see you all next week. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 